Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Kirsten McKenzie's time travel series, The Old Curiosity Shop, has been likened to Antiques Roadshow Gone Viral. And that's appropriate because Kirsten is a former antiques dealer who is fascinated by the power of previously loved objects. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Kirsten talks about historic time travel and her passion for unearthing ancient objects from archaeological digs. But before we get to Kirsten, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Kirsten's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like the show, please leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Kirsten. Hello there, Kirsten, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Jenny. I appreciate it. Look, I like to always start with this once upon a time question, but People like to know the answer. Was there something that made you feel like an epiphany that you had to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? The catalyst was a slow day at work. Uh, And it seems so um, banal banal that I was at work. There was a, at my uh, family's antique shop, there was an old Crownlin beehive pudding basin on the counter. And that one item just made me go, oh, I've got a notebook in my handbag. Oh, there's nobody in the shop. I might write a book. And I don't even know where that came from. I went from being a customs officer to thrust into helping run the family antique business to being a novelist, all because of that uh, Crownland beehive pudding basin. I don't know what it was. So you can't quite pick what it was about that particular basin? No, no, but that was the exact moment where I thought, I'm going to write a book. And then when my brother, who I worked with, turned up, I said, I'm going to write a novel. And he goes, you never finish anything. And I was like, well, (laughs) (laughs) well, here we go. (laughs) He sort of issued the challenge. He did. So, And then um, it backfired on him because after my second book, I quit my job (laughs) and started writing full-time. So, yeah. That's great. So that goes from you're going to write a novel. So how did you get from there to historical dual timeline novel? Well, The Pudding Basin made me, well, made my character really go from working in an antique shop, which is what the main character in 15 Postcards does, working in an antique shop, and then if I thought back to the pudding basin when it was brand new, I mean, if you think about everything in an antique shop or a second-hand shop even, everything was loved at one point. So who was it who loved that pudding was first manufactured? Um, And I know a lot 
through my work about the Victorian times. I'm not so au fait with the 1930s and 40s. So I just shot her back uh, a few decades earlier. Uh, but everything's been loved, and I wanted to go back to that moment in time when that item and the other items in the, in the stories were loved by somebody. Um, and we've all, we've all had things that we've loved, you know, in our childhood, a teddy bear or um, a favourite photo frame or a favourite pen that we like to write with. And, and then over the years, you lose it or it gets broken or you've moved house and you sell it. But at one point, that item was loved. So that's lovely. So very much your connection with the antique shop transferred over to your writing. Absolutely. And I would be writing in the summer holidays when my brother would be polishing uh, like brassware, for example. He'd take it to the family beach house, my mother's beach house. And my brother, I recall one summer, he was polishing some brassware. And next sentence, there was a tulip-shaped brass posy vase in the book. And then I would be unpacking a box of stock at the shop and there would be a diamante necklace and then that would be in the book and so everything sent me on a direction that I couldn't have predicted because I couldn't have predicted which items I would find appealing enough or which items jumped out at me to incorporate into 15 postcards it was like a really it was like a mysterious journey I mean the book is about she's unpacking the items from a deceased estate. And that's kind of like what writing the book was. I didn't know what I was going to unpack next or where I was going to go with it. Gosh, that's amazing. So that was obviously the first book that you'd written. You didn't have other manuscripts before that. No, that was the first book I'd written. Now, it crosses three continents in two centuries, and there's some terrific little ways that people have described it. They've described it as time traveller's wife meets bar pavilions or also antique roadshow gone viral. Both of, well, that last one particularly sounds pretty appropriate from what you've said. Um, Tell us a little bit about those continents and the time periods because some people listening may not be familiar with the books. So when I started writing 15 Postcards, I wasn't familiar with the New Zealand publishing scene in, in any respect. I read books. And that was the extent to my, of my um, exposure to publishing. I might have heard about Penguin or Random House, but I didn't know how you got published or, or, or what you needed to do to get an agent. And so it was all a mystery to me. So I thought, I know if I set some of my book in New Zealand, that'll guarantee me a New Zealand publisher. And just for your listeners, um, that's not the case. <laughs> and, um, and then some of the book was set in London because I used to live in London, like most New Zealanders. And I and I love London. And my godmother, who is author, also a New Zealand author, she's from Salisbury. So uh, there's a tiny bit of Salisbury woven in there as a homage to my godmother. And for the third continent, I set it in India. And my husband has been to India many times for work and I've never at the time I had never been and I thought if I write about India I will have to go there so that was my um those are, that is why I picked those three locations New Zealand 
India and London. Um, except writing, setting a third of it in New Zealand didn't help with getting published by a New Zealand publisher. And in fact, my my original publisher was set was uh, based in Wales. Oh, fantastic! Yes, I wondered whether setting it in three continents might have actually put some publishers off. They might have thought that it was a bit too spread. Oh, quite possibly. I never, um, I didn't think that uh, widely. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I yeah, and, and I, I want to be honest with people that I said it in New Zealand because I thought it would help me get a New Zealand publisher, um, and then I since that was back in 2014. And since then, I've made friends with lots of New Zealand writers, and they have told me both tales, tales where um, publishers say nobody reads New Zealand fiction and writers who, who independent writers who tell me that they've sold tens and thousands of copies of books set in New Zealand because their American readers want to read New Zealand fiction. So, Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It is. The third one is just recently out, isn't it? Telegram House? Telegram Home just came out. Oh, sorry, Home. Yes, yes. Telegram Home just came out last last month, end of last month. And that's the third and final book in the trilogy. So I am quite relieved to have it off my shoulders and I'm quite proud of it. Yes. Now that book, I found it really interesting that there's that idea that Sarah, the, the lead character, must reunite her family before the doorway to the past closes. And there's something quite poignant about that idea when I started to think about it a bit more. And the idea that even you could go back and talk to your ancestors in previous generations. Um, do you find that that really resonates with people, that it touches something deep inside of people? I hope it does. I mean, my the reason that my brother and I were running our antique shop was that my father died suddenly of a heart attack, and fifteen postcards and the last letter and telegram home are about Sarah's journey to find her missing parents. And to some degree, it's my journey to reconnect with my missing father, you know, because he's passed on, um, and. I don't think when somebody dies that they ever truly leave you because they've left their memories behind and photos and you know and wearing jewelry that he gave me. But I hope that other people sort of can go on this journey and imagine what it could be like and what they might do if they could revisit their parents or their grandparents in the past. And it's quite a comforting feeling to know that they're there. Like if you went back in time, all those people that you loved are there living their lives, going about their normal business, and you could hug them or watch them or hold them or talk to them. And and how reassuring would that be if you were struggling with something in your life to know that if you went back 20 years or 30 years or 100 years, there's somebody from your family who'd be there to put their hand on yours and say, it's okay, I've got you. You're not on your own. Yeah, that's a lovely idea. It really is. Was there anything particularly tricky about the physics quotes of time travel? Um. <laughs> yes. Uh, physics is not my strong suit. And <laughs> it wasn't until I visited India um, after I'd written the second book in the trilogy and we visited the um, ob- uh, the observatory in Jaipur that it all made sense to me how um, – they have this incredible observatory, uh, hundreds of years old, and with all these astrological um, 
devices and contraptions and I couldn't begin to imagine how they work to measure the distance from the stars and the equator and the hemispheres. So my uncle is a physicist. Um, I did not ask him for advice, but um, <laughs> if I had of, maybe he would have um, dismissed my theories. <laughs> but when I, if you incorporate the the intense knowledge that the Indian um, the Indians had when they built this observatory, it could make sense if the sun was aligned in the right way with the moon and the stars and the planetary alignment and a thunderstorm you know it's possible <laughs> that's lovely I've talked to another um, time travel author Julie McElwain and she's got an FBI agent who goes back to 1815 London and she has some quite interesting little things she threads into the story she gets semi-adopted by a nobleman who belongs to the Royal Society of Scientists and she at one stage she's debating whether she should tell him about the butterfly effect because right. if he knows about the butterfly effect in 1815, it's going to change the whole history of science. And I, I found that sort of idea a little bit amusing. Well, yeah, you've got to be careful not to change things too much. You know, yeah. If you change just one tiny thing, does that become a big thing? So yeah. that, I touch on that in some of, the, some of the parts of the books about if you change something, what could possibly happen next? Yes, it could change the whole history of the family, couldn't it? Absolutely. Mm, yeah, that, that would be very intriguing to write and also quite difficult to plot, really, to make sure that you didn't catch yourself out. Yes, my editor made me complete a very comprehensive family tree and going through that process for the second book, we realised that I needed to change the gender <laughs> of one of the children just to make everything work. So luckily that was before publication, but it was, um, if I hadn't have done that family tree, I would have tied myself up into far too many knots. I, yes. I, I really admire authors who can plot. And I'm currently reading a book recommended to me by another New Zealand author. It's called um, Take Your Pants Off. And it's about plotting and I am loving it. So hopefully that will make, um, improve my writing in the future about learning how to plot rather than pantsing my way through a story. Yes, yes. Gosh, pantsing your way through a dual timeline trilogy it must be quite a kind of exciting ride. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if exciting is the right word, but I have many notebooks filled with, you know, half thought out plot issues in the middle of the night as you wake up going, but what about the necklace? And I remember um, I had finished 15 postcards and I had sent it off to my, no, I hadn't quite sent it off to my editor. And I suddenly realized I'd left some poor character standing on the side of the road in India and he had was meant to be a major love interest. And there he was standing in the middle of the road um, all by himself in the middle of India doing nothing for the rest of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go had to go back and weave in the poor man and he is a major character and I just left him on the side of the road. <laughs> so I was just too busy with Sarah and, and her life that I left him yes. poor ma major brook on the side of the road. <laughs> now you branched out from your historical time travel into gothic horror and you published <laughs> Painted in 2017 and then a medical thriller, Dr. Perry, in 2018. And both of those books rated number one on the horror charts for Canada and 
Australia. Tell us about that change of a direction. Did you take your historical time travel readers with you with those books, do you think? I took, I like to think that I took most of them. Yes. And I, I appreciate that reading horror or thrillers is not for everyone. And I've had some of some readers say, oh, I'm not going to read those. You know what? That's fine. I understand that. Mm. I, um, I wrote Painted because I needed a break from the historical research. So it's all, it's fun writing historical fiction, but the research took, really took it out of me and I needed a break. And a few years earlier, I had entered a competition run by Ant Timpson called Make My Horror Movie. And you had to write a one page proposal. And um, I entered the competition with my one page proposal and I made it to number 13. You know, unlucky yeah. for some. Yeah. Um, but Ant Timpson said it was Caravaggio meets Poltergeist. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to make that into a book. And I found it so easy to write. I loved writing it. Um, it's set in a old Gothic house high on a hill, and and but there's no there's no country it's set in. There's no um, time frame. I've made it. There's a snowstorm. There's no phones. There's no computers. So it it could be set anywhere, anytime, and it's a very small cast of characters and uh, a haunted house, so to speak. And yes. the freedom to just be in one house and one over a period of one week was so refreshing and it's yes much different than writing um across two centuries and three continents yes yes and then what about dr perry oh my mother was looking to move into a retirement home and so she and i had started looking at the various options around auckland and i can assure you that not all retirement homes are created equal there was some horrible places we visited and some amazing places we um, walked through. And, you know, it, it had been in the news about uh, elderly people and um, some staff issues and how badly some elderly people have been treated. And I could imagine that some retirement homes, due to staffing shortages or money um, money profit over people could treat their elderly in a very unpleasant way. So that was the catalyst. It was looking for a retirement home for mum. Uh, she's now moved into a beautiful resort and I live there in a heartbeat. But um, <laughs> Dr. Perry, Dr. Perry was about that, about profit before people and what can go wrong. I mean, it, it's, there's a paranormal bend to it, but um, he's a, uh, and like Painted, I don't know if you've read the reviews for Painted, but Painted leaves it leaves it open at the end for the reader to dwell on the ending. And, and then the same thing happens with Dr. Perry. There's um, there's a little opening at the end for the reader to dwell on, oh, my God, what could happen next? What what has she left? <laughs> what has she left open? Um, and I like that in a book. I like having happy endings. But I also like having something to think about. So Yes, I think that readers often like to put their own imagination to work, don't they? Absolutely. Mm, mm. It's what they say about sometimes with books ter being turned into movies, that people much prefer being able to fill in the details themselves rather than have it just presented to them. That's right, absolutely. You need, you need to have a little bit in the corner just to 
think about. How did you get those to number one on the charts? I mean, I'm sure they're very good books, but a lot of good <laughs> books just sit there, don't they? They do. Um, I think the New Zealand author um, uh, community has been incredibly supportive and helpful in giving advice about marketing and um the right book bloggers to approach, the right publications to approach, how to approach them. I didn't know any of this. And I and I am so grateful to the people who passed on their experience and their advice. I think everyone in the community seems to lift each other up. And, yes. um, and I'm incredibly grateful. It's very hard to rank highly when there's six million other books and your genre out there so I'm very yeah. lucky for, for their help with the marketing advice and to the bloggers and um the the horror and thriller publications that um reviewed the books for me that's fantastic now you've, you're returning to historical thrillers your latest one which I think will be out well you can tell us when it will be out but <laughs> set in Florence in 1966 and it's called The Ruination of Art. So that's the one that you've got coming next. Tell us about that one. Um, well, The Ruination of Art started life as a <laughs> um, was going to be my Booker Prize-winning literary novel when, when I first sat down to, to write it. And then it turned into... Maybe it won't win the Booker Prize. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it could just be a really good historical fiction novel. And then I would turn it into, actually, I'm quite good at writing standalone thrillers. So it's going to be a standalone thriller set in Florence in 1966 during the uh, terrible floods that they had, which wiped out a lot of the artwork and architecture. So uh it's funny because Michelangelo warned Florence you know, in the 1600s about their um, flood defences and their waterways, and they still have the same problems today. So, <laughs> um, so I have 60,000 words of that that I started um, a little while ago uh, that need to just be massaged more into the thriller genre as opposed to the Booker Prize winning literary masterpiece and uh and then it will be about 80 to 90,000 words once I finished. And are you self-publishing or do you have a publisher? I have a publisher a small publisher based in the Hawke's Bay so Squabbling Sparrows Press. Oh right yes 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 that's right I, I had heard the name when when we met at that um function but I wasn't quite sure where they were that's right yeah so I was my publisher was in the UK um, for 15 postcards in the last letter and to be honest being with somebody at home is much nicer and um, it's hard dealing with the time zones and so far away and faceless people on the end of your email so um, small is good and I'm happy that's great it's a bit scary that 1966 is, is regarded as historical, <laughs> isn't it? For someone like me, it is. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Maybe we should just call it um, Italian thriller rather than historical thriller. <laughs> now, the time travel element of your historicals, they edge almost into fantasy. And I'm wondering, 
how much latitude you allow yourself in terms of the factual detail with your history. You say that you actually spend a lot of time doing the research. Tell us about that. I do spend a lot of time researching it because I want to ensure that it's the small things that I think that matter more. So um, the the description of whatever it is that they're drinking or the mm. type of wallpaper on the walls. I, I've made no secret of the fact that I've moved um, one, one of the major battles in India. Uh, I moved it 500 miles closer so that my protagonist could run from the sound of gunfire. So um, <laughs> it's just a small thing. It's only 500 miles, but um, but it, it, it doesn't, I don't think it affects the story in as much as she's not in the battle. It's, it's on the sidelines. Um, yeah. yeah. I've, I've put Gilbert and Sullivan having dinner in the Savoy uh, at the, with my, you know, as my protagonist and her, fa- uh, her father walk past. At the time, I found a menu from um, the Savoy. So the food that they're eating is completely historically accurate. Uh, the Savoy is completely historically historically accurate. Whether Gilbert and Sullivan were having dinner at the time, I couldn't tell you. Maybe they were. They did used to eat there. So, see, so I do a little bit of creative license, and then things like the peach melba that they were eating and the name of the chef completely accurate um and i also use twitter and it's going to sound like a really strange research uh resource but i would ask people on twitter how long does it take to walk from manse street to high street in dunedin and i remember one man came back and said oh 20 minutes and a woman came back and said no it's 45 minutes and then the two of them had this big argument about Man length legs versus lady size legs, and um, and I just went for it would take the person half an hour to walk. So, and that way, all these people were uh, part of my writing process, and it wasn't just you know distances in Dunedin. It was pubs in London and churches in England and Bruce Bay. I, I, there was a photographer I tracked down on Twitter who'd taken photos of. Bruce Bay on the West Coast. And I said, can you describe for me the sand? And he's like, well, it's just sand. I said, but is it grainy sand or is it like rocky sand? And all of this was over Twitter. So How fantastic. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Look, moving away from talking about the individual books to your wider career, you mentioned that you were a customs officer. I, I see on your CV also that you worked in TV briefly or had a bit of a flutter with TV. Tell us a bit about what you did before you started your full-time writing career. Um, well, like most Aucklanders, I've been on Shortland Street. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was, a, I was a featured extra, so I was a nurse. And that meant that I had never had more than seven words. So otherwise, they'd have to pay me more. So I would say things like, your coffee, doctor. Or, I'm sorry, no, I've finished. Those are a couple of my uh, lines I can remember. Um, so I used to do that. And I was on Spartacus, a, a season of Spartacus, as a market woman. Um, and Power Rangers and, you know, Step Dave and all those, those sort of New Zealand um, sitcoms where they they bring in the extras to sit in the bar and you spend a day pretending to drink wine, but it's actually apple juice. 
Uh, and oh, that's great. When you when I saw that, I actually assumed it would be writing scripts. I didn't realize. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it does give me a, a, an insight into, and especially for painted more so than the other books about what a camera angle would catch if you were filming from behind someone or over somebody's shoulder or coming around the door or the pattern of a handprint left on a mirror. And so Painted was written with a very cinema, cinematog, cinematographic. Cinematic, yeah. Cinematic, thank you. I couldn't get the right <laughs> word out. A real cinematic bend to it because I was imagining it I was imagining filming it. So, no, I've never written for screen, but I've, I've been on screen a lot in the background. And for people who aren't familiar with New Zealand TV, Shortland Street is our longest-running soap. I'm, I'm not sure how many years it's been going now, but many, many years. I think 25 years. Is yes, it? yes so 25 I was going to... years now. So it's our Coronation Street or Days of Our Lives. There's a, an overabundance of airplane crashes, earthquakes, murderers, oh, everything that could possibly happen on Shortland Street has happened more than once. <laughs> yes. And pe- some people's lives stretch right through the whole series, don't they? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Dr. Warner, yes, and his three three wives or four wives. Yeah. Look, um, is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other that you'd say was the secret behind your staying power in this game of writing? Um. I want to say finding your tribe, but your tribe can just be one person. So I've got a couple of people that are there on the end of your Facebook Messenger who I can go to for help and advice at any stage, and we help each other. So we've helped Vita read each other's books. We've helped do give marketing advice, um, linking people up, but they're the people that you go to and say, oh, my goodness, I've just got a one-star review and this person's called my main character a bobblehead. What should I do? And, you know, they're the person that laughs it off with you and tells you to go and have a wine. You just, everybody needs that one person, but that person needs to be at the same part of their career as you because yes. you're both there on the same street. Like there's other people that have written more books than me and have more success. Their advice is invaluable as well. But – that person who's on that parallel track to you, who knows exactly what you're going through and you're both navigating Amazon rankings and reviews and Goodreads and do you answer reviewers on Goodreads and, and, and you don't normally, and um, bookshops and book signings and can you help me, what, how, how do I get signage for a, a book festival, all of that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm very lucky that I've got some close friends there. That's the best advice. You you can't do it on your own. You write on your own, but you can't do it on your own. That's fantastic advice, yes. Look, turning to Kirsten as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, it sounds like you have been a fairly passionate reader in the past. Tell us who you like to binge read. Oh, I, as a child, and I can see from here my bookcase, it is stuffed full of Enid Blyton. And because my father was an antique dealer, he would bring home um, the first editions. And But he would just bring home random Enid Blyton books as he came across them. So that's what I read as a child. And then I read everything that I read, the Stephen Kings, the Dean Koontz. I read, um, uh, uh, I like reading biographies. 
And then George R.R. R. Martin, The Game of Thrones. I've never really been a fantasy reader, but his books just hooked me in. They're, they're huge, but they, um, the way he describes somebody's bodice or the laces on somebody's shoe, just there is, you can't leave the book. You're so in, drawn in by the descriptive passages that the whole world ceases to exist apart from his words. And my other favorite author is, um, <laughs> I would never imagine that I'd read um, fiction about witches and vampires, but um, the series A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, that, and that's time travel as well. That was incredible, that whole series and the historical aspect to it when she goes back to Elizabethan England. And Although witches and vampires aren't my usual reading fear. Mm. Although I did read Twilight, and as much as people dismiss Twilight, I loved Twilight. <laughs> so, <laughs> I um, haven't heard of your witches lady. I must look her up. Oh, Deborah Harkness. She is incredible. Oh, just she was a historian first and um, then wrote this, this uh, trilogy set around the Bodleian Library and um, oh, just amazing. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but uh, I'll read almost anything. I'm not a big romance reader, but, you know, not because I choose to ignore it, just it's not currently on my shelves. Yes, yes, yeah. I think I, I'm a bit the same in terms of we. I don't try and tackle fantasy on this show because I think fantasy is actually a whole genre in itself. But I really enjoy Nalini Singh's paranormal books. She's a New Zealand author who's yes. done incredibly well overseas. And I love her paranormal books as an exception to the rule. So I know exactly what you mean. Yes, if you stumble across them, and it's great to get that surprise of I've just really enjoyed this. Like uh, the New Zealand author Nix Whitaker, she's written a book, um, well, she's written a series, but I, I I came into it via the second book um, accidentally, set in uh, Victorian England, but with a dragon shifter in it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But I got, I was attracted to the book because it was the blurb um, talked about Londinium, which is, I don't know if you know, but every year I, I head off to England and I work on an archaeological dig. And of course, the Roman name for London was Londinium. And so in Nix Whitaker's book, she, uh, she's taught the Lady of the Golden Hands, I think it's called. I, I apologize if I got it wrong. But um, she's, in, she's in London and she's a, a police, um, one of the first police women. And um, and she's uh, investigating a crime, and it, and it involves a, a man that turns into a dragon. It was really good. It's historical fiction, but with a dragon. So yeah, yeah. Just randomly, I really enjoyed it. And the sequels just come out, and um, or the next installment. So I've just bought that online. At some stage, I must go back and read the first one. But um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's one of my top reads this year. That's lovely. Now, tell us about Londinium. What, how, where did the passion for that come from? Um, well, at school I did Latin, as you do, and I was lucky enough to go on the um, school trip to um, Greece and Italy, thanks, Mum and Dad. And from that moment on, I just the whole Roman history I've loved and adored. And years ago I read about a site called Vindolanda, which is a Roman fort just outside of Newcastle in England, that has been, it's operated by a trust and volunteers like myself um, 
pay for the privilege of digging alongside an archaeologist um, for two weeks at a time. And my husband just said to me, you know, you've always wanted to do it, go and do it. So I flew over for the first time in 2015 and dug for two weeks and I loved every single shovelful. And uh, this year when I went, I found a writing tablet, so a 2,000-year-old writing tablet where you can still see the ink writing on it as we're pulling it up out of the anaerobic soil, the, the soil without any oxygen in it. And to hold that in my hand, I don't know what it says yet. You could see the writing, but I'm not very good at reading ancient Latin. And it might just say, please send more socks. Or it might say, um, you still owe me money for the beer, send it now. Or it might have the name of the missing cohort that they still don't know the name of. So it could change history, our knowledge of history, or it could just be in order for more socks. Um and I how love it. Amazing. It's, yeah. How amazing. So now, so now I go every year and it's my two weeks off my children and my housekeeping and um and my I my fingernails all break and I uh but I love it. And it's an incredibly varied group of people, some retired, some young students, some archaeologists from um Europe who don't get to do something as exciting as finding writing tablets that when I went in 2017 we found um, children's wooden swords you know and it's in a Roman fort there's not meant to be women and children in there but obviously they're making children's toys so uh, so all these things they add to your cache of stories that you can pull on in the future and so a book that I'm planning for next year um, Ithaca Bound is uh, set in an imaginary fort next to Vindolanda um, and it's going to have some of the couple of the same characters from 15 postcards in there. So it's not part of the trilogy because obviously a trilogy is just three books, but it will be a spin-off of sorts. So people will just have to look out for those Easter eggs. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Now, perhaps circling back to the beginning and looking back over your writing life so far, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? And if so, what would you change? Uh, I would learn how to plot first. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would I would sketch out my storyline and I would know where it was going to start, what would happen in the middle and what would happen at the end before I sat down to write it. So um, but this book I'm reading now about learning how to plot, that's why uh, The Ruination of Art's on a bit of a standstill because I want to, I'm going back and writing each of my characters down, learning about them, learning what their motivations are before I, I feel confident enough to um, progress any further. So mm. that would be uh, – I love pantsing. I love going off on tangents and changing direction, but I think if I was doing it again, I would plot first. Um, you've been very productive, So you, you, but I imagine that if you plotted, you'd probably write faster as well, do you think? That's the theory. So. Um, I listen to a couple of uh, podcasts every week, the um, Mark Dawson's Self-Publishing Formula podcast and Joanna Penn's The Creative Pen podcast, and they quite often interview authors who talk about how plotting does speed up their writing, and they talk to authors who um, also do voice recording, uh, voice to text, which I, I don't do. But uh, as I understand it, plotting speeds up your writing and 
that helps authors who want to do fast release of um, long series. Yeah, it sounds great in theory. It's probably a little harder to do than what they make it sound like, I think. But <laughs> yeah. And I also have two school-aged children and a husband who travels a lot. So my writing time, you know, is is limited as well as housework and after-school activities. And today was the speech finals and next Friday's the cross-country and, you know, so. Yes, yes. I was going to ask you if you had a typical working day. Sounds like you don't really. Uh, my typical working day is the, the girls go off to school. I procrastinate a lot in the morning. And then at about two o'clock, I realise it's an hour till school pick up. And I write really well for an hour. <laughs> no, I do I do write, but then there's the marketing stuff in the middle as well. So um, I'd like to say I do a thousand words a day, but I do a thousand words on a day that I sit down and write. Um, yes. And I know that I can write 347 words in 10 minutes if I do sprints. So that's as fast as I can write. I can, in a 10-minute sprint, 347 words, that then I can go back and edit afterwards. So I prefer to write in sprints. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you've mentioned your um, coming story about the Roman fort, but what is next for Kirsten, the writer? What have you got planned for yourself for the next 12 months? Oh, <clears throat> so for the next 12 months, we've got, we're going to finish the ruination of art and get that published and enter that in the next Naya Marsh Awards. Uh, then after that, work on Ithaca Bound. Um, I'm going to try and coordinate my annual archaeological dig with attending Newcastle Noir in the UK, which is the um, a crime writing festival. And that's in May, so hopefully I can coordinate my travel for that. Um, in Labour Weekend this year, I'm going down to Christchurch to be an attending author at Wham Bam Author Jam, which is like a speed dating event for authors. So instead of taking my usual vintage suitcases and my hall stand and everything else that I would take to, to have a beautiful display, it's a black tablecloth, it's you as the author, and your books, and it's basically speed date an author in a big room. And there's authors coming from around New Zealand and Australia. And it, uh, last year was very successful, um, so that's why I'm going along this year. So I'm pleased that they're having me, and uh, fingers crossed we sell lots of books. So is that readers come, you date with the reader, so to speak, yes, do you? Yes. You, you? Yeah, the readers come to your table, and uh, yes, there, there's no fancy um, – there's no fancy displays or, you know, there's no prizes for the best display. It's simply a black tablecloth and your books and you behind the table and away you go. So I like that. How amazing. I hadn't heard of that. And they can ask you any questions they like. Is that the yep. idea? Hmm. Yep, anything. That's fantastic. So how do readers find you online? Uh, well, my website's uh, kirstenmckenzie.com and that's got a, a semi-regular blog on it where I talk about things that I've done and um, and learn things that I've learnt and I'm on Twitter a lot so under Kiwi Mrs Mac um, of course I had Twitter set up years before I became an author so I can't it's too late to change my handle now uh, there is another Kirsten McKenzie on Twitter who's an, a fabulous um, Scottish author 
she she and I quite often get each other's uh, mail and um, <laughs> and tweets. But I've I read her books before I first published mine, and she writes great historical fiction. The Chapel at the Edge of the World is my favourite one. But um, so if you get us confused, it's okay because she's also an incredible author. Oh, that's lovely. Actually, there's New Zealand authors popping up all the time that I haven't heard of, and she's another one I haven't heard of. So. Right. Mm. And uh, so I have my website. I'm on Twitter, obviously Facebook. My books are available. Um, my, my historical fiction trilogy is available on Amazon, but my other books are available wide, and your local bookshop can order them in. And I think they're in most libraries, or you can just ask your library to order it in. Yeah. No, that's great. They're definitely in the Auckland library. Mm. They are, yes. Mm. Mm. Well, look, Kirsten, it's been great talking. Thank you. We have come to the end of our time, but what a fascinating life you're leading, that's for sure. Thank you so much for asking such interesting questions. I wanted to ask you what time of year you were going to your dig. Do you go to the same same time every year? Uh, I have – they do it over 12 two-week periods. Not obviously numbered one to twelve. My favorite time to go is period ten, which is um, now, and so all my friends are there now. But I went period seven this year. I just fit in with our family um, commitments. But next year I'm going to go hopefully in May, so that'll be my first time in May. But that's to coordinate with Newcastle Noir, and I'd love to just be a guest there and um, and listen to some of the amazing speakers that they've got lined up. So. Yes, yes. I was just imagining it might be a bit cold at some times I, of the I, year. I think it might be. So they don't they don't operate over winter, no. so it's mm. just from April to the end of mm. September. Mm. Look fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the show and we'll look for your new books with interest. Thank you so much, Jenny. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.